democracy is sick and it's our job to help make it better. I think that's a really important and unique role, particularly for my generation, because once you get to be 50, you understand that, that you're going to pay, play the long game and that you, the incremental wins are really important. But there's also that other role of the younger generation, which is I want everything to change now and overnight. And I think that's important too, because it's not the way the system is set up, but the system might not change unless they were pushing in that direction. All of this is just to say that you do have to expect you're going to lose. But if you have that mindset, I think from the outset, you're more likely to use that anger when you lose to fuel the next win. When you see a need, what do you do? Do you jump in and try and solve the problem? Or do you think about it for a while and workshop all the options and scenarios in your head before deciding whether to take action or not? Now, I see from personal experience how both prove valid, needed, and valuable. And I've learned firsthand how they both have their pitfalls. When we jump in to solve a need or a problem, we can end up on a path to a crash course in humble pie and hard learnings on the go that can often do harm to others. And I also see how thoughtful consideration can lead to failing to take action and falling into complacency. Or even worse, where you tap out altogether because you feel like your voice, your vote, your time, your resources will not make a difference. What we can't do is stop caring or tap out because we're afraid it won't work out or when we feel called to be a part of something bigger than us, no matter how big or small. The stakes right now are too high. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. My whole life, I have been a jump in and figure it out on the go person, which made me feel a special affinity to today's guest. But first, I still cringe when I look back at the hubris of my younger years thinking I had all the answers, but I appreciate how that energy fueled my decisions to get involved in issues that meant a lot to me over the years, <laughs> whether it was elementary school class elections to raising money for local charities to getting involved in state and federal politics. And underneath that hubris was a desire to help, to make a difference, feel a sense of purpose and power. And especially when I was younger, I did not overthink the outcomes or what others thought. I just wanted to see change, often immediate change. Patience was not my jam. <laughs> And I still struggle with it when I see poor leadership impacting so many. Now, no doubt, I use this fire for change to work through the burdens I carried from feeling powerless and voiceless as a kid. Activism, like sports, felt like an outlet to my own pain. And I was the ideal volunteer. I would make all the cold phone calls and stay outside for hours, putting hundreds of flyers on cars and parking lots and going door-to-door -door canvassing. When I was able to vote, I could not understand why people did not share my belief in our mandate to vote. Now, age has a way of bringing in much-needed patience, humility, and perspective to be more thoughtful, curious, and inclusive when seeking change. And over the years and to this day, I still have conversations with people who choose not to vote, donate their time, donate their resources to causes they care about. I see again and again how the protector of cynicism disconnects many from staying engaged in a system they feel does not work for them. And I also see how this protector of cynicism sets in with many folks who tap out and do not feel that they can make a difference with their vote and their advocacy. Now, my eyes open to see some of the things that fuel the disconnection and anger in many people who don't believe their voice and their vote matters. Now, the therapist parts of me get really truly get the pain. And I also believe wholeheartedly in the power of taking action, even when things do not end up with the outcomes we desire. This is the work. And as Jenny Booth, who is a previous Sunburden Leader guest, says in her aptly titled book on anti-racism, doing nothing is no longer an option. We need to make the time to do something, even if it's small and not witnessed on social media. 
And when one or 10 or 20 or 100,000, even millions of people do something, the impact is great. It all adds up and it starts with us. It starts with one. There are forces that want us to not care, to feel overwhelmed and shut down. And when we look away and stop caring or staying involved is when we delegate our power. And my guest today challenges this complacency, especially right now when so much is at stake here in the United States. She builds an organization that has room for all levels of engagement and involvement, no matter your resources and your capacity. Shannon Watts is widely known as a summiter of women's audacity. (laughs) That's awesome. And as the founder of Moms Demand Action, which is an organization that I have long supported and proud to be a part of, Watts was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, a Forbes 50 Over 50 Changemaker, and a Glamour Woman of the Year. She is the author of Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement took on the gun lobby, and why women will change the world. Now listen for when Shannon reminds us none of us are safe until we are all safe. Notice when Shannon unpacks the dangerous connection between unfettered access to guns and our precarious democracy right now. And pay attention to when Shannon talks about her reasons for leaving the organization she founded and what is next for her. Now, please welcome Shannon Watts to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Shannon, welcome. Thank you for having me. I am really looking forward to this conversation. And I want to kick off with just, you know, like a light and breezy topic about fear. I've been thinking about fear a lot. And in fact, I see it a lot these days. Just last week, there was a scare at my kids' middle school around a gun threat and just a lot of complicated dynamics and just watching the ripple effect of fear just in our community around that, recognizing that everyone's already holding so much. And having worked in politics too, I know I learned early on that the number one way to get people to do something is to get them really scared. And I see how everyone's handling their fear differently these days. And how it often turns us against each other. So I want to bring you back to some of, you know, your roots on particularly on how fear inspired you, what was going through your mind as you worked through your fears for your kids' safety after the Sandy Hook mass killing. I think it's a really important point about emotion and how they can be used against us, whether that's internally, we're using those emotions in a, a negative way or externally, right? And and what the gun lobby is hoping is that fear will be a motivator to buy more guns. For me, fear, devastation, those emotions turned into rage very quickly. Yes, I was afraid. Mm. Yes, I was sad. But I was also, more than anything, incredibly angry. And like fear, anger can be used for negative purposes internally, externally, For me, it was a motivator for change. And I had so much anger, I feel like it crowded out all those other emotions. It kind of did for a decade. (laughs) I I just felt anger. (laughs) Um, and, And I guess what I would say is if you are fearful, that is not a reason to hide. That is a reason to fight back. We don't need to live in fear. Other nations don't live in the same kind of fear that we have around this crisis. And it's preventable, it's senseless. And I hope that I am proof positive that we all play a role in doing something to stop it. Well, you touched on something that sometimes in response to our fear, especially around our safety, some people think more guns, more weapons is the answer. Can you say a little bit more about that and your your view on that? Well, there are at least 400 million guns in the hands of civilians in America. And we have a 26 times higher gun homicide rate than any pure nation. So I just mm. wonder at what point do the guns make us safer? It's it's patently absurd to imagine that more guns somehow making us a safer country. The data shows that that is in fact not the case. Easy access to guns is is killing us and it's killing our democracy. So that is a trope from the gun lobby, this idea that that more guns will make us more safe. It's been discounted in, in states with strong gun laws. There's less gun violence and less gun death. And in states, typically red states that have bad 
or poor gun laws, they have more gun violence and more gun death. So the data is in. I think the question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? Okay. So speaking of fear, I can't help but think of what's going on in the Tennessee state legislature. What is the fear from your experience, your 10 years working in this space of those who don't, who are fighting sensible gun laws, who are fighting um, background checks and and just some reasonable, like f- folks who are involved in intimate partner violence from buying guns. What are they afraid of if we have those sensible laws? Uh, it's so much bigger than guns. You know, it, it's a fear of losing your power, I think, at its core. This is a demographic yep. that is slowly either dying out or being pushed out of power because we have a very, very diverse generation of Americans coming up behind them. And we've seen other nations, our nation, act out in this way before. Um, What is different in this day and age? Well, since 1968, there are about triple the number of guns in circulation in this country. So the way that these people who are afraid of losing their power are acting out is to do so with guns because gun makes them feel like they have more power. I think it's important to remember that this is a very vocal minority of people in this nation. Mm-hmm. And the the heretofore silent majority really has all the power. 90% of Americans agree on things like a background check on every gun sale. So I think because we have been either hopeless or felt helpless or thought this isn't going to happen in my community or my school, Americans haven't necessarily voted on this issue. I I think that's changed quite a bit in the last five years. But this is a reaction to what they see coming. And that is a nation where gun extremists don't have a seat at the table. You talk about power. And it's interesting. I just had Cedar Barstow, who authored the book, Right Use of Power. And this power that folks you're talking about folks are holding on to really is a power over, not a power with. Because I sense that the people that are involved in the organization that you've led for a decade are about let's power with this together, but this is really about power over and small group of people wanting to hold that power. And can you say more about that? Well, I, I think it's so interesting because uh, let's take Tennessee. You, you brought up what is happening there. And, and basically, um, there are some very extreme, mostly men in the Tennessee legislature who are beholden to the gun lobby and also are worried about their control of power. And so they've passed these incredibly lax gun laws that are leading to horrific uh, shooting tragedies and and overwhelming gun violence in the state. And so recently there was a, a mass shooting at a school in, in, in Nashville, a pretty conservative, Christian, almost all white school. And so what happened was that these extremists, that these parents of these students probably voted into office, didn't want to hear from them when the shooting happened and they decided suddenly that, you know, they wanted to support stronger gun laws. And in fact, what was so interesting was during the committee bill hearings on gun legislation, these mostly white male lawmakers had these mostly white moms, again, who probably Mm. voted them into office, physically removed from committee hearings simply for holding signs. I mean, like dragged out. (laughs) And it just goes to show you like the patriarchy is coming for you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. It doesn't matter how affluent you are. It doesn't matter what your religion is. At the end of the day, none of us are safe unless we're all safe. And I think it was a really important lesson I'm hearing every day from women and moms in Tennessee who say, our eyes are wide open now. You know, we understand that the way to keep our kids and community safe is to keep everyone's kids and community safe, right? Black and brown women have been sounding the alarm for decades with very little for decades, attention yeah. for decades. And, you know, we stand on their shoulders. And and I wrote a piece for my Substack recently about the fact that I've learned so much in the last decade. I came to this issue because of the school shooting. I was worried my kids weren't safe in their schools. I was living in a bubble. This is a very complex issue that des- demands and deserves holistic solutions. It's not mm-hmm. just the assault weapons ban that might kid- keep your white kids safe in, in your white suburb. 
It's unlocking dollars for community violence intervention programs. It's red flag laws. It's background checks. It's disarming domestic abusers. It's a whole host of things that we all have to advocate for, I think, as women. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on the also the emotion of rage. And what I've learned even in my own clinical studies is rage at its heart is a very protective emotion. And what we do with that, right? It's almost a primary emotion even behind anger. Um, and you mentioned that that was an emotion you lived with for a while at the beginning of starting Moms Demand Action. At first, you were scared for your kids' lives. How how have you channeled and managed your rage over this last decade? Um, and how have you led others who are feeling that same rage so they can channel it in ways for good um, and not completely burn out or turn on themselves or others in the process? You know, I, I can't say that never happens. You know, I've, I've seen a lot in the last decade, um, and I, I've seen that yeah. happen. You know, I've seen people turn that anger inward. I've seen it in them turn it at other volunteers. I've seen people burn out. I've seen people decide it's too much. They can't do the work. Um, I think <laughs> as I look back on my life, anger is an animating personality trait for me. And mm. I think probably for a long time I used it in the wrong way. Um, and, mm. and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a practicing Buddhist. And for me, the last 10 years have been sort of a lesson in right speech, right action, how to use that anger in a way that is focused outward on change and trying to get others, you know, to organize around this issue and to make progress. And I think for the most part, I, I have succeeded in that. I'm, I'm, I feel like, I've grown a lot and learned a lot. It isn't easy. This is really, really hard work. Whether it's the being exposed constantly to the trauma and the tragedy, whether it's working shoulder to shoulder with survivors who have been through the unimaginable, whether it is dealing with lawmakers who are frankly corrupt, not up to the task, or not interested in listening, that can be, you know, very demotivating. Or even just the fact that the system is set up to take a long time to force change. So we focus a lot on joy. I can remember we had our first Gun Sense University. This is where we bring all of our volunteer leadership together every year. It started in 2014. And at the end, we had this huge dance party. And there were some people who thought, oh, that's not appropriate. That's not what we do. Well, this is very solemn work. We are very sad. We are very morose. Mm. And, and that can't be the only focus of a volunteer organization or no one will stay. Yes. No one will stay. Yeah. Joy and happiness and celebration is integral to successful, probably anything, but certainly organizing. And also, Self-care. And I, I think, you know, that in itself is a whole loaded and fraught topic <laughs> of what is self-care. Absolutely. Um, I just had a conversation recently with Dr. Pooja Lakshmin about this and her work on, on self-care. Um, but in, in some ways, being an advocate is self-care. And, and, mm. and sometimes it's also just taking a break, you know, from the work. Absolutely. You talk about change. And as someone who's worked at all levels of government, local, state and federal, changes can happen quickly. And one thing I've been hearing from a lot of folks, whether it's my neighbors, whether it's the leaders I work with, feeling really wrestling with big feelings of helplessness and hopelessness about change to the point like, can I make a difference? And I read an interview that you did earlier this year with the 19th, and you were talking about change. And you said, incrementalism leads to revolutions that stopped me in my tracks. And I sat on that and I'm like, ooh, and I'd love for you to walk me through your thought process with that statement. And then how do you lead with this pace in mind when people are still being harmed real time? Well, you don't take on the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that has ever existed and imagine you'll never lose. <laughs> and in those early days, there were a lot of losses. You know, I can remember we lost in Arkansas and the governor, Asa Hutchinson at the time, was standing next to the primary gun lobbyist at the NRA and signed this bill into law that allowed guns on college campuses, including at tailgates, where it was like minors and alcohol. 
And we hadn't really had any progress in the state of Arkansas. I think people there felt like, why would I join a volunteer organization on this very hopeless issue? And that so pissed off moms and women that we like grew exponentially overnight. And in fact, we got so big so quickly that we went in immediately and carved out an exemption so that you could not, in fact, bring guns to tailgates. And then a year later, two of our volunteers ran for office and won. One of them beat the guy that put the guns on campus bill forward by 12 points. She was a retired nurse. And then the year after that, we were able to stop a Republican supermajority from passing the NRA's priority legislation. So it just taught me and us that we were going to have, we we call this concept losing forward. So you're going to lose. You may lose a lot. Hopefully you win more than you lose. But what do you learn so that you win the next time? And there's something about women and mob that I think are the special sauce of activism because we understand the long game. I mean, if you've had kids, right, (laughs) you understand that it is a very long process and that you know, even even one night when your kid has a horrible fever and they're sick, sure, at 3 a.m. you'd like to say, hey, you know what? I am really tired and I'm going to bed, but good luck with this. You don't do that with your kids. And I don't think moms will do that with democracy either. Like, democracy is sick and it's our job to help make it better. I think that's a really important and unique role, particularly for my generation, because once you get to be 50, you understand the that you're going to play the long game and that the incremental wins are really important. But there's also that other role of the younger generation, which is I want everything to change now and overnight. And I think that's important too, because it's not the way the system is set up, but the system might not change unless they were pushing in that direction. So all of this is just to say that you do have to expect you're going to lose but if you have that mindset, I think from the outset, you're more likely to use that anger when you lose to fuel the next win. Mm. So I want to bring you back, though, to kind of your your beginnings with this organization. How did you manage incremental change? I mean, it sounds like this kind of it caught fire and you knew, OK, it transitioned from just a little thing to, oh, my gosh, this is going to be my thing. Um but at the same time, how did you navigate the really hard losses at the beginning? And I know the cynicism. I can almost write the scripts in my head that I'm sure you heard at the beginning while lobbying members oh, yeah. of Congress. I can just hear it trying to get in the door to meet for the, meet with the members, not just the staffers, all of that. How at that time in those early stages did you manage your rage and also the deep disappointments and rejection? Well, I can remember... In those early days, it was late 2012, early 2013, when a bill was put forward in Congress called the Manchin-Toomey Act. And this was a bipartisan bill in honor of the Sandy Hook school shooting to close the background check loophole that still exists at a federal level. And so we spent those early days as an organization going to D.C., meeting with our lawmakers in district, begging them to support this bill. You have to remember that a quarter of all Democrats back in 2012 had an A rating from the NRA. Senator Mark Warner in Virginia voted for concealed carry reciprocity, right? They they were hoping that if they looked like they were pro-NRA, that they wouldn't get beat by Republican. Oh, that's right. So even after all that lobbying, and, and to your point, you know, I, I can remember meeting with my senator in Indiana, who at the time was a, a Democrat. Joe Donnelly, he he wouldn't even entertain an assault weapons ban. You know, he was just hoping for background checks. That was sort of the mindset of Democrats. I'm sitting in the Senate gallery. The bill fails by a handful of votes. Some of them voting no were Democratic senators. That was a huge loss. In fact, I thought, okay, well, we'll just pack up our stuff, go back to our pre-scheduled programming of our lives. You know, this, there's no way this is going to work. The nation's not ready for this. And I suddenly started getting calls from other women across the country who were organizing under the auspices of Moms in Action. And they said, hey, my governor wants to to pass this good legislation, like in Maryland or in Connecticut, uh, Delaware. And then I was getting calls from women who were saying, my governor, my state legislature is going to do the opposite. They're going to pass really bad bills after the Sandy Hook school shooting because they think we need to arm teachers. And we just realized that 
we're going to have to build momentum in city city councils and state houses, and and that 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 momentum would eventually point Congress and the president in the right direction. And I think what's really interesting is after that bill failed, not a single one of those Democrats who voted against Manchin Toomey still has their job. Because the NRA went in and invested millions in their opponents, even though they voted with them. And it taught such an important lesson to Democrats, which was with friends like the NRA who needs enemies. <laughs> and now not a single Democrat in Congress has an A rating from the NRA. Not one. They they figured out they could vote their conscience and that they would have this army of red-shirted moms, angry moms. They would have their back. So how have you been navigating this incremental change without burning out or becoming cynical? You mentioned your faith practice, but what else has helped you? I mean, I certainly have had times along the way where I felt burned out and I needed to recharge. I do think I'm energized by using my skill set. You know, I am a communicator. Um, that That is probably my primary skill set. And so when there's a shooting tragedy, I feel like it is my job to, one, get other people off the sidelines and get them plugged in and two to educate them about the solutions because you come sometimes to the movement with preconceived ideas of what should be done. Um, so that actually is, is helpful to me in times of tragedy. But I think part of what I have been able to do is to lean on my family, to lean on my husband, to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and frankly, to pass the baton to other people when I need to take a break. You know, I've talked about the fact that I have uh, one of my kids um, was diagnosed with a really horrible eating disorder probably five years into this work and relapsed several times. And there was a time when we thought they might die. And so certainly my focus was on them and not mom's demand action. And, you know, because I'm a woman, I think one, I felt guilty about giving my work to other people. And two, I my ego was like, no one else can do it as well as you can, or maybe even worse, what if they do? And when I came back, what I realized was the work was still there. People brought new energy and new ideas to the table. And I was able to do what I needed to do, which was to put my focus on my family. So it's not, I'm not going to pretend that I, I have this down. Um, but I will say, I get a lot of questions from moms like, do you feel guilty or did you feel guilty that you were so busy? Uh -huh. And the thing that I can say now at 52 with grown children is that they never bring up the times I didn't go to a soccer game. They only talk about the times that they were really proud and they they were motivated by the fact that I did something I loved. And so if I can, if I can say nothing else to other moms, it's that. Don't feel guilty about pursuing your passions. Mm. So- You've been doing this for a decade and you talked about handing the baton. Well, you literally are handing the baton at the end of this year of this organization that you founded. That's permeated every part of you and your life. Um, but before we talk about why now, it struck me though, you stay you stayed year after year through countless like death threats, very public, very vicious. When I was doing research uh, for this interview, I was, I mean, it was really mortifying. And that was probably just stuff that was shared that I saw. I have no idea what was behind the scenes. I could only imagine. I know other public figures I know that have had death threats and had to get security. I, why did you stay through that incessant harassment? You have kids, you know, like that piece that, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, these targeted attacks on you and your family. Why did you stay even through all of that? I think there was a little naivete. <laughs> I When I started Moms Demand Action, I had no idea that I would start getting threats of death and sexual violence to me and to my kids immediately. I never imagined I'd be a public figure. So like it was very easy to find my phone number and my address and my email. And, and it was immediate, right? People driving by my house, people sending me texts, people calling me, sending me emails, cutting letters out of magazines and sending me like Son of Sam letters. And... I can remember I called the police and, and this was in Indiana and the police came to my house and they said, well, ma'am, that's what you get when you mess with the Second Amendment. Mm. So I kind of had to make a choice early on whether I was going to double down or back down. And again, I think this goes to the fact that I am animated by anger. I am a pretty pugnacious and provocative person and I doubled down. It's kind of like beating a, a gremlin after midnight. Like if you try <laughs> to silence or intimidate me, I will go absolutely spider monkey. 
And whatever, you know, those threads were tapped into that feeling. And it just, I, I wanted to share with the world what is happening to me as a woman, because I'm a, I'm a woman taking on the gun lobby, because I'm a woman leader. But also, like, these are the same people who think they should have unfettered access to guns. And so it just became a way to further the storyline, I think, you know, to share what was happening to me. And I mean, I would say after a year or two, it just kind of became like white noise. You know, I just, I, I can remember on my book tour, they were dragging armed men out, you know, of my book tour stops. And I don't know, it just, it was bizarre to me, but I, I never felt afraid. Where did you where did you get that from in your story? Where because I I've worked with as someone who's worked with two decades of folks healing from trauma, I see people respond differently uh, based on their difficult experiences or how they're inspired from their family of origin. I'm like, what's behind this? My therapist writes me, what's behind that? Probably like kind of that. Oh hell no, I am not backing down. The math is not up here. Come on, keep coming in the face of like again, armed men were being dragged out of your your book tour. So I just think that's still noteworthy, who who in your life or what stories in your life help fuel you for this time? Uh, I would love, I mean, that might be a whole other podcast or a therapy session, but <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, except that I kind of feel like I came a little bit like this into the world. Ah, this is um, you. That I have always rooted for the underdog, that I have always been ready for a fight, you know, when, when someone rings that bell. And like I said, I do think that in my career and in my younger life, that did not serve me well. I think it made me difficult. It was, um, you know, something that, that, that was probably hard to live with in me. The, you know, speaking of my, my husband and my colleagues, I think I, I, there was something that was, a fuse that was easy to light. Hmm. But when I started Moms to Me in Action and all that focus went into my anger about an issue, like I I do think I have become a much gentler, kinder, more compassionate, more chill person. Maybe that's because I'm older, but there's something about taking that inside me and funneling it for good that was productive. And so it's almost like really channeling all of that feistiness towards this calmed you down in other areas of your life. So it's almost this balancing. That's that's fascinating. So this this is what's curious to me. Then why why now? Why step down now? What was behind the decision process? If this you know, I, which is one of the many statistics. What is it? Ten million volunteers that are part of Moms Demand Action. And the NRA now is smaller than Moms Demand Action. They have shrunk since you've been there. Members of Congress who feared any retaliation from the NRA now is like, okay, what what are the moms going to say about this? And where where's Moms Demand? They've channeled, they've shifted. That's a huge zeitgeist shift in that has been remarkable. Um, the winds are starting to continue, even amidst heartbreaking tragedy, the incremental change winds are continuing to grow and magnify. So why now? Why leave now? Well, I mentioned to you that I am a practicing Buddhist and managing sort of your shadow ego is a big part <laughs> of that. And I can remember when I started Moms to Man Action, a volunteer said to me, well, don't get founder syndrome. And I had no idea what that was. So I had to Google it because I'd never been a founder. And it's this idea that your ego becomes so intertwined with the organization that you can't separate the two from one another. And that yep. eventually the ego starts to have a detrimental impact on the organization's ability to evolve and grow past you and who you were when you started it. Yep. So I never imagined that this role would be infinite, that it would go on my whole life. I didn't want it to. I'm 52 now. There are other things that I do want to do with my life. This has been, I mean, when I say Moms to Man Action has been all-encompassing, we are talking about every hour of every day for the last 11 years. Mm. Vacations, kids' events, you name it, right? I've always been sort of ready, prepared, having to exit for a, a shooting tragedy. Um, so I ask myself every year, like, is this the year? And that this started early on. Is this the year? Mm. And I can remember in 2018, right before the Parkland shooting tragedy, I thought it was the year, five years in. 
And then that happened and our organization tripled in size. And I just thought, you know, so there have been times when I thought yes or maybe, but it just didn't make sense. And then after the Valde and Buffalo shooting tragedies, we passed the first federal gun safety legislation in a generation, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which I'm still amazed that that passed. (laughs) But when I was standing in the Rose Garden, I just had this moment of realization that, yes, this is the time. This is the bookend to my activism. Not everybody's. This is the bookend to my activism. And I am going to hand the baton over. And what I think is beautiful about it is that you know, I started this organization as a white suburban mom who was scared her kids weren't safe in their schools. And I'm handing the baton over to a black queer woman who lives in Washington, D.C. She has four kids. And she's scared her kids aren't safe in their community, right? And so the organization will evolve. It will grow. It will have different interests and different priorities. And I am excited to watch that. I hear you saying that now, that you're excited to watch. And I believe that. And I've also worked with other founders and other leaders who stepped down from organizations that have become all-encompassing, a part of their identity, a part of their being, and in many ways, a love, like another family member. What are what are the things that you have in place as an off-ramp so that you can re- recalibrate um, not just your identity, but your center? Um, I mean, and fi- I'm, I'm 52 too, 52 also, like, we're just starting, you know, this is, this is not the 52 that you and I thought of when we were younger. Um, but yeah, what are the things that you are doing to help you off ramp, download, recalibrate from this intense 10 plus years? Well, when I told the team almost a year ago in November, there, I, I knew, and I had this conversation with my husband and my therapist that there was going to be a lot of suffering that I was going to have a lot of moments in the coming year where I thought, holy shit, like, who am I? What do I do now? What am I going to do with all this free time? What do I say when people ask me who I am or what I do? Um, How do I stop doing the things that I've been doing all day, every day for a decade? And there was a lot of that. But I, because I was aware that that was going to happen, I think I was able to keep it in check You see often where leaders of any kind start to feel that way, and then they decide to just burn down what they've created. (laughs) And I knew that that was a possibility. And I'm I'm really grateful that my husband, who you know knows me better than anyone on earth, he he was a sounding board when I would say Mm. I'm feeling this way. He would put it in perspective for me. My therapist would put it in perspective for me. And then it was also about well, well, what does interest mean now that I've kind of like stopped my life for a decade. What what have I not been doing that I would like to do? And I went to college to be a journalist. I'd love to write. And, and what was really interesting, uh, synchronicity, is that I was running on a treadmill probably a month after it became public that I was going to leave. And I got a call from Maria Shriver who said, why don't you write a book about women and leadership for my imprint? which I didn't imagine I would do. And I, I said, yes. And I started writing for Substack, which I write for twice a week now. And I just told someone, I'm busier than I've ever been, even when I was doing Moms Demand Action. So, you know, I, I am too busy to be concerned about what's happening over at Moms Demand Action other than rooting them on and helping to promote what they're doing and, and you know, still popping in to to help in any way I can, but I want to go on to another phase of my life. Like you said, 52 is young and there's a lot to do. And uh, I'm eager to share what I've learned as a, as a leader for a decade. Leading is hard. <laughs> Leading is often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, and yet sometimes the stakes seem higher, in fact, they are higher, and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times like these right now when you need to feel rock solid on your plan, your values, and your action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. 
Leading Today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Is there anything, if you're being really honest with yourself, that you are a little having a hard time letting go of or fearful of around your role with this organization that you founded? I think I was most fearful of losing what made me special. Mm. Right. What makes me special is to be the tip of the spear and to, to be leading and to be the one people look to for help and information. And, and suddenly when you're off the team, you're off the team, right? You're not getting those calls anymore. People aren't really that interested in what you're thinking about something. I think that was my biggest fear, but I will say, I feel like I've, I've gone through that valley and come out the other side already. Because there have been shooting tragedies, because there are big things happening. Um, you know, I was invited to go to the White House for for an announcement the president is making, and I instead I'm going to Japan. So I would never not have missed that for the world in the past. Uh, but it now it just it kind of you know when you break up with someone, for example, then you sort of feel like oh that was a different part of my life and I've moved on, and and I kind of feel that way now about the work I was doing, and I don't mean that like there. It, it is my legacy, and I I love that, and I honor it. But I also think it's healthy to have some distance. Yes, a healthy breakup means you actually need space from each other, um, for sure, for sure. Thank you for sharing. And and you mentioned at least I read somewhere that you when in stepping down that you're going to still be involved as a volunteer. What 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 do you envision that looking like? Even with all these other things that you've going on that you have got going on right now. Well, my friends tease me. They're like, so does this mean you're going to be out at the farmer's market with us handing out secure storage information? I'm like, sure. You know, you invite me to something and I'll do it. I mean, I just, I did a a phone bank on Tuesday night for the election. I am here and willing to help, particularly California moms where I live now, um, in any way I possibly can. Uh, And I, I think that the it is it is more important than ever to do this work and sadly i think it's it's there're going to be more tragedies that that just emphasize that and and plus we have such an important election coming up so <laughs> yes. i will do anything i can do but i am writing a book full time and that is uh, <laughs> takes it's a lot of alone time staring at your computer um and so that's really sort of taking precedent right now uh, uh, in my life and all the writing i'm doing and i'm i'm feeling creative and I'm getting to hang out with my husband, which I didn't get to do for a long time because I traveled so much and visiting my adult kids. So I'm here to help, but I don't have to necessarily be the first person they call. I want to talk about your Substack. Um, I'm a follower. I signed up and I'm loving that you're just, you're, you're doing something that we're told not to do. You're kind of just writing about a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you do a deep dive into things that you care about, menopause your child recovering from an eating disorder, your experience leading uh, Moms Demand Action, and more. And I've really appreciated you just kind of like, what do you want to know? Instead of, here's my new thing now, which is kind of how we're taught. So I really encourage people listening to check it out. I think the content you write is great, but just the modeling of exploration is something that we're not encouraged to do. And you're really modeling that well. And one of your substacks, you wrote about what you learned as a white woman in the gun safety movement. And I I read that article several times. It was really bringing up a lot in other experiences that I've had. And you called it an imperfect list written by an imperfect person whose activism has been grounded in privilege. I want to go into some of the things you touched on, but can you explain what what, what 
you mean or say more about activism grounded in privilege? I think it goes back to this idea of, you know, I was a white woman living in a bubble who got involved in this issue because I was scared my kids weren't safe in their schools. My husband's income enabled me to be a full-time volunteer for a decade. I have not been impacted by gun violence. Um, There are so many things that give me privilege and the ability to do what I did. And what I see are white women sometimes making the same mistakes that I made originally, which Hmm. was, again, to be so myopic in my focus on mass shootings. And that I I kind of saw some of that happening in Tennessee, which was the reason I wrote that piece. Hmm. And also, to be honest, I couldn't say those things when I was leading Moms to Men Action, right? I, I really had to be careful to make sure that I was making everyone feel that they played an important role, which they do, but I couldn't antagonize or alienate or really even bring up some of these more difficult conversations, or at least I didn't feel like I could. I do feel like I can do that now because, you know, that, that, that I'm sort of doing that now a little bit from the sidelines and with perspective. But again, I think there's a little bit of us, there's a little bit of, of that white womaning that we want to come and save the world <laughs> yes. and that we think we have the best ideas without listening first, without thinking about this. I think this example kind of is a synopsis of what I'm trying to say. I did a book event once in Boston and our Boston membership leader was there and she was a black woman. And most of the people at this book event were white. And she stood up and she said, thank you all so much for being here today. But are you also going to events in black and brown communities? You know, are you going to courthouses and holding people's hands? Are you going to marches and rallies? Um, are you showing up when something bad happens in those communities? Are you advocating for the legislation those communities are prioritizing? And I just think that's something we need to think about more. Um, and I, I, I see us evolving and I see us getting there. And I certainly see Moms to Men Action volunteers understanding that and learning those lessons. But it's almost like every time there's a mass shooting tragedy, it it starts all over again. It is interesting how it's like you get there, then it's like back to the basics. It's cyclical, but there's still there is progress being made, but it is incremental. You talked about um, some of these key learnings within that that post um, as an imperfect person whose activism has been grounded in privilege. And one of those posts you said acknowledge your privilege. And I think that's a word, especially um, a lot of white women are struggling. They struggle with that. They're like, they, there's almost like what you acknowledging is different than feeling bad for having. I would say it's what you do with your privilege. But say more about how important it is to acknowledge our privilege um, in the work, anything that we're doing. Well, just by being white, you are privileged. Uh, so that that's sort of the first step, right? Is to yep. say, oh, I'm privileged because I'm walking around as a white person in a world that was created to benefit white people. And if you have a problem saying that, I think you need to think about why. What does mm-hmm. that bring up in you? And and I want to be clear. I'm sure 10 years ago, I would have felt the same way, right? Not all women, not all white women. <laughs> and it is only now 10 years in that I can say, yeah, like that was how I started. Mm -hmm. And it was because I learned and I was willing to be open to understanding my faults as, as an activist that I could grow. You know, it, it would be interesting to know why in 2023, that's still something that white women grapple with. I think what hardens me is there's recent data, there's polling that came out recently that shows Republican women and Democratic women agree on the solutions to gun safety. It's the only across the aisle agreement by gender, by party, by issue. That gives me hope Mm. that we can figure out a way to say, as I say in the Substack piece, how do we use our collective voices and votes to support Black women? (laughs) Because... They are really the heart of this issue. They are they are the North Star of this issue. And they know what they need to stop the shootings of Black boys and Black men. 
And if we can come to the activism, come to activism with that perspective, I think we will be better activists. But, you know, the, the other piece that I love is Jessica Valenti is a feminist oh, who wrote great. about white women activists. Oh, my gosh. And and my favorite thing when she talks about how white women can be helpful is getting permits because white women believe the system is set up to work for us, right? Yeah. And so black people are like, if you need an event space, if you need to have a march rally, someone get a white woman because she can get a permit for you in about 24 hours. <laughs> so it's like you it's it's really saying I am privileged. I have this unique access to making things happen because of that. How can I help? Really? You know, at the end of the day that is how can I help? And I think like one of the other lessons was seeking the input of black women and what stood like a segue from acknowledging your privilege as a white woman is also, I am not the center of this. It's decentering where we're so used to just, you know, jumping in and seeking the input of black women. Say more about that. And also what, what do we do with that input and who do we center with that input? Can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, early on when I started Moms Demand Action, I became friends with a woman named Lucy McBath who had been a flight attendant for Delta for 30 years. And just weeks before the Sandy Hook school shooting, her son, Jordan Davis, a black 17-year-old, was shot and killed by a white man at a Florida gas station because they got in an argument about the music in Jordan's car being too loud, allegedly. And Moms Demand Action volunteers, you know, again, we were just a fledgling organization, but they supported Lucy in Florida during two trials. The first one was a mistrial. Eventually, he was convicted of murder. And Lucy became a spokesperson and a colleague. And, and she reached out to me, I would say, in 2013 and said, I'm so grateful for this platform. What I see, though, is when I'm speaking to crowds, they're mostly white people. And if this organization is going to last, if it's going to evolve, if it's going to grow, if it's going to become national in scope, then it has to reprioritize who's in its leadership, who's in its volunteer base, what issues is it focused on? And she was exactly right. Like that, that was, you know, Lucy's a congresswoman now, so of course she was right, but that was exactly, you know, what she needed to be telling me. And I'm grateful that I listened because we, we did do all of those things. Now, I will say every time there's a mass shooting tragedy and we grow, we have to start that process all over again because a lot of the people who come into the, the, the movement look like me. But it really, it, it isn't just about listening to Black people. It isn't just about including Black people in the conversation because that conversation has been going on. It's really about following yes. the lead, particularly, I think, of Black women. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other lessons you mentioned is be brutally honest with yourself or ask someone else to be. Can you say more about how you came to that lesson? Well, I have been so fortunate to have people who are brutally honest with me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really sorry for those people because, you know, I'm sure it's not always easy to have been brutally honest with me, but there are certain people in my life um, some of whom were volunteers and are now colleagues, some of whom are family members or just friends. But I've gone to them and I've said, like, I've done this thing and I'm not sure that was a good thing. Can you tell me? Or I will say, I want to do this thing and they will tell me. But I've made a ton of mistakes along the way. I do think what has helped me is that I'm a pretty self-aware person. I always want to know if I'm messing up. And I'm also open to doing things differently. I'm not trying to shut down and just forge forward because I, I do know if you lose people by, by always saying no, by being inflexible, uh, by doubling down, that isn't the way to encourage a bigger tent. So I've made plenty of mistakes and I, I don't want to present this like I am somehow the model of how you should do this. I'm not, but I've been open to learning and to listening and to getting feedback. And if you take that feedback to heart and you can decide, you know, is it wrong or right? And sometimes you get feedback from people who probably don't have your best interests at heart and you're less likely to take it. That is why I go to friends and family. And if you let that in and you're open to doing things differently, that's sort of the key to human growth. Would you say that Maybe some of the times where some of your biggest mistakes or falls were when you weren't listening 
to others that were in your inner circle or yourself? Or would you say it's something else? I think it's when I stayed in my bubble and decided that I knew best, or I made a decision without getting feedback or input. Um, I, you know, I, I do think there's something about leaders, and I, I see myself as having had that trait most of my life. I've always wanted or expected to to lead on different things, and sometimes you can be too sure that you know the best way forward, and there's beauty in the pause of thinking that maybe you don't. The sacred pause. I mean, that was one of the other lessons is acknowledge your lack of knowledge. And a lot of leaders are terrified of that. Like like the fear of, I can't say I don't know. I can't ask for help. There's this weird pressure that if we show that, that they're going to not be, or they're going to lose trust when often it has the exact opposite of, I need help. I don't know. Tell me more. So tell me about how you came. Can you say a little bit more about how you've acknowledged, how you acknowledging your lack of knowledge has helped you be a better leader? I think part of what I decided at the very beginning was I would not use I, I would use we. Uh, that serves a lot of purposes. One thing it does is it does decenter you. It makes other people feel empowered and excited like this is their organization, not just mine. But it also takes some of the pressure off, right? If it's not me, I, mine, it's ours, and we make those decisions together, and we succeed together, or we fail together. And that's really always been my strategy, is to talk about the collective we and not I, and the knowledge is all of our knowledge. There's also just so much pressure to being a woman leader and to feeling like you can't fail in public. So much. Um so much. And people are looking for you to fail in public. So again, leaning on the collective we, it, it just, it, it served so many different purposes. To me, that's almost the key of leadership. I'm with you. And this lesson is one that I feel like I've been saying since I was excited about the whole process of elections is put your ballot where your mouth is. What do you want to say to our listeners who are like, it doesn't count. Look what's happened in these elections with the split electoral college and the general, you know, po- you know, population vote or it doesn't matter. What do you say to those folks that are just like, ugh, I'm not sure this makes a difference? I'll be honest. I don't have a lot of patience for that. <laughs> I think being cynical <laughs> is an excuse for inaction. It's so much easier to say what I do doesn't matter. I can't I can't make a difference. I, I just that as I said, I'm animated by anger. That makes me really angry because I'm proof positive, right? Moms Demand Action is proof positive. All of our volunteers are proof positive that in fact, you can make a difference. In 10 years, not a single Democrat has an A rating anymore from the NRA. Mm -hmm. We've passed 500 good gun laws. We've stopped the NRA's agenda 90% of the time every year in state houses for the last nine years. We just passed the first federal legislation in a generation. So much is happening on this issue. And it's only because every day people get up and they decide that they're going to work on this issue. I think the bigger danger, like to people who think they don't make a difference, that's part of the problem. But what I think is more nuanced and more interesting and also more problematic is what's going to happen in places like Tennessee, where again, a lot of these white Christian conservative parents voted in these extremist lawmakers, and we're going to go into an election cycle. So what do you do? Do you vote in so-called moderate Republicans who might be better on guns, but bad on a whole host of issues? Or can you finally put your vote where your mouth is or your money is and vote for a candidate that is a Democrat simply because it will save lives? And you will finally move the needle forward and and you will be doing what black women do, <laughs> right? Like, vote like black women should be your motto. So I think it will be really interesting to see that in Southern states. How, what will they do next? What will they decide to do in the face of lawmakers who drag them physically out of committee hearings? Well, I'll be watching. I'll be watching and getting to the ballot, hopefully, too. So wrap up, how has your understanding of success changed since you were younger? Oh, you know, when I was 
in the corporate world. I did corporate communications for several decades. I was miserable. Like I was, you know, promoting sonogram equipment and health insurance and a whole host of things that were not of interest to me. Now, the value of that was I spent thousands and thousands of hours writing press releases and speeches and telling stories. But I never felt fulfilled. I was Mm. not happy. I was making a lot of money. What I felt fulfilled by was volunteering. I worked harder than I ever had in my life. I made zero dollars. I had to manage huge amounts of volunteers, which is slightly like herding cats. And yet it was the most fulfilling work of my life, like to work shoulder to shoulder with other people who cared about the lives of perfect strangers, to feel like we were in something together, to feel a sense of joy and a sense of community, to all be working for common good and to know that we were on the right side of history was hands down the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. So to me, success is living in aliveness. Mm. Not job titles or a dollar sign. Obviously, those things have their place, but without meaning and purpose and living your values, it is, it is, it does feel lifeless. That's powerful. Well, before you go, I have a tradition of asking some quick fire questions from my guests. So, what are you reading right now? I know you're writing a book, but what are you reading right now? I am in the middle of uh, Maria Shriver's books, all of her books, because I'm working with her imprint and I love them. They're very inspirational and I think they're pithy and they're easily digestible. So I have all of her books in a stack on my nightstand. What song are you playing on repeat? Oh, man. Lil Boo Thang. <laughs> I cannot get that song out of my head. It, it's. I might have to go to therapy for that. It's in there forever. <laughs> now it'll be in mine. What is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Uh, I have to say two: the the Bear and Reservation Dogs. I love both those movies. Brilliant, or both those shows. Brilliant. Favorite '80s movie or piece of pop culture? I'm so curious what you're going to say on this. <laughs> oh my God, the '80s! I only now do I appreciate that. I'm so glad I came of age in the '80s. It was the best decade in the history of the world. <laughs> I'm going to go with Footloose. I saw it 14 times. I still like the music. I I mean, I love a good Footloose Peloton class. Oh my gosh. Yes, that is a great Peloton class. And we got to go with the Kevin Bacon original. I appreciate their attempts at the remake, but the Kevin Bacon original is legend status. What is your mantra right now? Let the game come to you. Oh, I like that one. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold? Or at least one of many I suspect you hold. (laughs) Oh, this is getting, this is very uh, unpopular and outspoken opinion. Spanking is child abuse. I don't disagree. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? I'm going to say, who inspires me to be a better leader and human? I really think very highly of Kamala Harris, mm. the vice president. And, um, you know, she's been under fire for years. She's brilliant. She's really kind. So is her husband. And, I I think and hope she'll be the president one day. Mm. Shannon, where can people find you as you are moving into this new chapter? And if they want to learn more about Moms Demand Action, where can they do that? So you can find me pretty much on all social media. I'm not that much on Twitter or the formerly known app as Twitter uh, anymore, but (laughs) Twitter, threads, Instagram, Substack, all Shannon R. Watts. Um, And then Moms Demand Action, momsdemandaction.org. Text the word "ready" to six four four three three, and a volunteer will immediately get back to you and help you plug you plug you in where you live. Um, and you can also go to everytown.org if you want to read more stats and research and data about gun violence. Wonderful, Shannon. This was an honor. I am so grateful for this conversation, and I'm so excited to read your future book and see all the things that you do on this next chapter. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was wonderful. Thank you. Before you go, I want to make sure you take some of Shannon's incredible learnings that she gave us in this important Unburdened Leader conversation. Shannon reminded us to use our fear to fight back instead of tap out, and how data shows time and again that unfettered access to guns is not making our country safer and instead is killing way too many and weakening our democracy. She gave us a powerful call to action reminding us that no matter our influence, education, 
faith practices, none of us are safe until we're all safe. Shannon also shared the challenging process of deciding when to leave the organization she founded. Some really good nuggets that we all need to think about there. I value how Shannon created an organization that made getting involved accessible for all, no matter your bandwidth, skill set, or resources. And I think that's on us to cultivate spaces that can do the same and push back on the protector of cynicism that says we do not have time and our voices do not matter. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this really important episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode was meaningful or impactful to you, I would be so honored and appreciative if you went and left a rating, a review, and shared it with a few people who would also benefit from this episode. And I also want to give a special shout out and thank you to the folks at Yellow House Media who produced this episode. Thank you so much. <music>